Lord, we ask now that you would minister to our hearts as we study the word together. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are in Matthew chapter 8, and I'm looking at verses 14 through 22, healing, prophecy, and discipleship. And we are in this section here, chapters 8 through 10, the power of the king. The gospel is all about who Jesus is and what he has done to secure our salvation. That's what the gospel, the good news, is all about. It's all about Jesus. never ceases to amaze me how many professing evangelicals consistently jump over who Jesus is to what Jesus has done in his all-important cross work. The Gospels don't do that. At great length, the Gospels lay out first and foremost who Jesus is. And then building on that emphasis, bring forth the all-important crosswork of Jesus Christ, followed by his resurrection. Thus, the work of Christ really builds on the person of Christ. And a full Gospel presentation presents both who Jesus Christ is as well as what he has done. And a saving faith responds to both who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for us. Christ must be be believed on for who he is as Lord God, as well as what he has done as our Savior. Who he is as Lord has everything to do with his sovereign authority. His sovereign authority. That's what Lord means, sovereign authority. And that's what Matthew 8 is all about. We're in Matthew chapter 8. It's about the authority of... And Christ's rightful authority as king who brings in the kingdom. This is what was presented in Christ's earthly ministry. Note uh, this quote here uh, from the New Bible Commentary. The choice of incidents in this section is in every case to bring out Jesus' authority in action. And that's the key idea behind everything that we are studying here. It's Christ's authority behind all that he's doing. He was the king with kingdom authority, presenting the kingdom on the condition of repentance. True repentance, true faith personally recognizes Christ's lordship authority, as seen in the faith of the centurion, as noted last time in our study, Matthew 8, 5 through 13. Well, today we pick up Christ's exhibition of kingdom authority in Matthew 8, verse 14. Let's begin there. Matthew 8, verse 14. Now, when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. Now, the parallel accounts in Mark chapter 1, 29 through 34, and Luke chapter 4, 38 through 41, make it clear that the setting here is on a Sabbath day. Jesus had just come from a synagogue, if you read those contexts. He had come from the synagogue, a synagogue in Capernaum, where he had cast a demon out of a man. Mark calls the house now that Jesus entered into the house of Simon, that is Peter, and Andrew, Mark 129. So evidently it was a fairly large house. You've got the two brothers living there. And, and of course, Peter's got his uh, wife and mother-in-law living there too. Uh, now let me uh, uh, point out something here. Uh, we, we read here about Peter's mother-in-law who was sick with the fever. And some have guessed it might have been malaria. Uh, we're not given specifics. But, but again, uh, note the obvious here. If Peter had a, a mother-in-law, he certainly had a wife, right? It's hard, it's hard to uh, get a mother-in-law without having a wife. And so he was clearly married contrary to the teaching of Roman Catholicism. 
Uh, They try to get around this and say, yes, Peter had been married, but his wife died before he became an apostle. Just one problem. Just one problem. In 1 Corinthians 9, 5, Paul indicates that Peter still has a believing wife as an apostle. You know, you got to read the whole thing through. The Roman Catholic idea that the clergy should not be married has no foundation in Scripture. Peter was married. The elders clearly can be married and are expected that normally probably will be married as one of the qualifications to be an elder is that they be the, the husband of one wife, 1 Timothy 3, 2. But here's the setting. It's on a Sabbath. Jesus came in, uh, you know, came back from the synagogue, came into Peter's house, and, and there Peter's uh, wife's mother is lying sick with a fever. Verse 15. So he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and served them. Emphasis on personal touch here in Christ's ministry. Uh, now, we have noted he didn't have to touch in order to heal. In fact, he healed the centurion servant from a distance, just spoke the word. But on various occasions, Jesus chose to touch, especially in context, it seems, where Jewish law or tradition forbade it. Uh, Fever was one of those situations. John Walvoord writes, Jesus was uncontaminated by contact with leprosy and disease, and he was not bound by Jewish narrowness from those whom the world despises. D.A. Carson says, as in verse 3, you know, when he touched a leper, as in verse 3, the touch did not defile the healer, but healed the defiled. Just contrary to what would normally be the case. The authority and power of Jesus was instant and evident. As soon as he touched her hand, immediately the fever was gone. She rose and served. Older manuscripts say here, uh, served him. However, in the parallel passage in Luke 4.39, it says uh, she served them. Of course, both are true. She ministered to Christ, but also to the entire group. The point is, Christ's authority was absolute. <clears throat> there was no gradual recover, recovery. The healing was immediate and complete. Now, normally with a fever, even in recovery, uh, some time is needed to get full strength back, right? Yeah, usually that's the case, but not here. She went from being down in bed sick to instantly getting up and serving at full speed. Now, much application has been made Uh, concerning her healing, that uh, in healing we should serve the Lord. And she is a great example of that principle. What do we do with our health and strength? That's a good question. Uh, We should use it to serve the Lord. Verse 16, the narrative continues. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Even though Jesus healed on the Sabbath, the Jews were very conscientious not to move around. You couldn't go very far, a very short distance on the Sabbath. And so they were very conscientious not to move around on the Sabbath. So the thought here is that they stayed put until evening, when the Sabbath was over. You see, the Sabbath began on Friday evening at sunset and ended Saturday evening at sunset. But as soon as the Sabbath was over, the people began congregating at the house, uh, bringing to Jesus many who were either demon-possessed or who were sick. In fact, Mark one thirty-three says the whole city was gathered together at the door. Wow, you got the whole city showing up at your house. That's, a, that's something. That's what happened. 
In other words, they came from all the quarters of the city. Now, how large a city was Capernaum? It was more like a village. We estimate there was probably about 1,500 people who lived in Capernaum at this time. But if you have uh, the whole city showing up, still a pretty large, <clears throat> large uh, congregation. Now, it's kind of interesting that although they waited until sundown to come so as not to violate the Sabbath, yet somehow word had spread quickly, even on the Sabbath, that Jesus had the power to heal and cast out demons, which he had done both on the, on the Sabbath day earlier. This was uh, the day, the Sabbath day, that he cast out a demon and he healed Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. You know, good news travels fast after our decision last uh, Sunday night. Uh, it was exciting to be able to purchase the property, and we'd spent much time for prayer about it in recent months and all our due diligence and all that. But, but uh, a day or so later, I thought, I, I better call my dad. I better call my dad and, and tell him, you know, kind of what's happened here, because we had talked about it a little bit in the past. And when I called him, he said, oh, yeah, somebody already told me that. <laughs> and uh, he said to me, yeah, news like that travels fast. And yes, it does. Uh, you know, the miracle working power of Jesus traveled very fast, spread like wildfire going through the entire town, even on the Sabbath. And note the authority of Jesus was on clear display. It says, with a word, he cast out spirits. His word carried authority over demons. They had to submit. They had to leave. And it says that he healed all who were sick. All of them. Note that not merely some, but all were healed. Again, this shows the unqualified authority of Jesus. He had absolute power. Absolute authority over the demons and over diseases. Christ's power over the demons shows that his power was really of God. You see, demons are real and they invariably seek to do people harm. That's what demons are about. That's what the devil is about. He never does anything constructive. It's always destructive. They're all about harming people. They never act for the good of humanity. They are evil and malicious by nature, and they seek to inflict harm. Uh, John MacArthur says this, All of the cases of demonization dealt with by Christ involved the actual indwelling of demons who utterly controlled the bodies of their victims, even to the point of speaking through them, causing derangement violence, rendering them mute. And that is what we have characterized in the Gospels as far as demon possession. Uh, these spirits lived inside the bodies of these people. So this is all about authority. All about authority. Spiritually speaking, there are only two forces of spiritual power in the world. There is the power of God, and there is the power of Satan. Now, Satan is a counterfeiter. There's where the tricky part comes in. And he's a deceiver. That's what he does. He's a deceiver. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. <clears throat> says, and no wonder for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. And it talks about his ministers uh, likewise do similar things. Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Well, if you see an angel of light, I mean, obviously of God, right? Not obviously. It's about deceit. He makes it look really good. That's Satan's game. Now, people often want to claim the power to heal and claim some miraculous activity in relationship to their ministry. It's a very common thing out here. 
But we must also ask if, if there is supernatural activity involved, and there may be, what is the source of it? Just because something supernatural is happening does not mean that it is necessarily of God. Satan, too, has power, and he uses it to deceive. This is where sound doctrine comes in, and discernment goes with sound doctrine. John warned us in 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Test the spirits. Might say, judge, test, evaluate whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And you see, behind false prophets are evil spirits. That's how they do their work. Now, the New Testament teaches that it is characteristic of false teachers to claim to have special powers over the demon world and to throw themselves around in relation to it, claiming to have special powers ministries. I think the Bible shows this is clearly an ego thing, and really the ego relates to a, a rebel thing where they're kind of their own authority here, making themselves out to be somebody. Uh, note to Jude, verses 8 and 9. Likewise, he's talking about these false teachers. Likewise, these, uh, likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority. In context, I think the lordship authority of Christ And speak evil of dignitaries, that's angelic authority. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, the ultimate fallen angel, contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. The context here clearly has angels in view. The related example of verse 9 relates to Satan. Therefore, I take it that primarily in view is the reviling of evil angels, referred to here as dignitaries. After all, they still were created with a, a certain, uh, a certain uh, glory about them as angels, even though they're, even, they're fallen. Uh, false teachers claim to be really big shots. Uh, they claim to have great spiritual power and authority, and, they, and that's their draw. He's some kind of a really powerful holy man who can do miraculous things. They think they can bind Satan and demons at will. But they are speaking way out of their league. Uh, They don't really have this authority or power. Uh, They are speaking really irreverently, blasphemously, and throwing themselves around in a spiritual realm that they know nothing about. We have a parallel to Jude in 2 Peter, verses 10 and 11. He says there, especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Again, he's using this word dignitaries of angels. And really, I think in context, he's talking about fallen angels. Because notice he goes on to say in context in verse 11, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them. Against who? These dignitaries, these fallen angels that are being... Uh, spoken against. Whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. You see, even holy angels don't revile demons like this. Even Michael the archangel in contending with the devil, Michael the, the, the highest angel, 
In contending with the devil, did not bring a reviling accusation against him. But what did he do? What did he do? He appealed to the Lord to put the devil in his place. He said, the Lord rebuke you. You know, the devil and and demons out here, who do we think we are? This is a God-sized job to put them in their place. We can't do it. This is a humble, godly response that says, the Lord rebuke you. False teachers want to make it all about them and their great spiritual status. In reality, Jesus alone has the authority to bind the strong forces of evil. In the words of Matthew 12, 29, he has the power to bind the strong man. That is the strong forces of evil. This is the unique work of the Messiah. He comes to set the captives free as only he can do. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, we have a prophecy 700 years before the time of Christ. Messianic prophecy. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Spiritual captives bound by sin and Satan. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And know what Jesus has just taught. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name, many powers in your name. They will claim to have cast out demons in Christ's name and Satan may even cooperate with them in a deceptive way so as to make it look good. After all, he does transform himself into an angel of light. Look at the good things that are happening in our meetings. Never mind that half of them are so unbiblical like being slain in the spirit, which you can't find anywhere in the Bible. In truth, Christ alone has power over Satan and demons. That's the power source. It's Christ. True believers look to Christ alone. He is the power that sets us free from the power of sin and Satan. He alone is our deliverer. You want a deliverance ministry? Look to Jesus Christ. He is the deliverer. You see, lost people are bound by the devil. 1 John 5, 19 says the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. So how do lost people get free from the bondage of Satan? We have to have some kind of an exorcism. That's what we have to do, right? No, not so much. The Bible is clear that the gospel is the power of God for deliverance, for salvation. To who? To everyone who believes. John 8, 32 says, the truth shall make you free. John 8, 36, Jesus said, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. It's the Son who makes you free, not the pastor. I like to think I'm somebody, I can really do, do it, bring it, I can it. No, I can't. I'm a very weak wimp. I can't do it. But I have a powerful Savior, and He can do something for you. Keep in mind what is being established here. In doing these miracles, Christ was presenting his messianic credentials, doing what no one but the Messiah can do. He was showing that he indeed is the true messianic king who has authority to bring in the kingdom. And he did this by doing kingdom miracles, which are miracles of deliverance and healing. This is what the kingdom is all about, my friends. It's about a time of deliverance brought brought to you by the Messiah. 
Now keep in mind that we're not in the kingdom yet. And neither were they when Christ was on the scene. He was merely presenting his kingdom credentials, showing that he was the king. The great issue then is would they in repentance and faith receive him? And alas, the nation's leaders who spoke for the nation, who swayed the nation, did not. He came into his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name, John 1, 11, and 12. We have a little verse tucked away in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 5. The writer of Hebrews is addressing the early church. And he says to them that they have tasted, that is the early apostolic church, have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. The age to come is the kingdom age. And he said they had tasted in in that early church era the powers of the kingdom age to come. So the miracles put on display by Christ and his apostles were merely samples, a foretaste of of the kingdom power yet to come. Those miracles are not the norm for the church age, but rather properly belong to the kingdom age to come. Notice, tasted the powers of the age to come. They relate properly to this future kingdom age. And yet they sampled it. They tasted it during the apostolic era. Note it carefully again. We are not in the kingdom. We are still praying as Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom come. It's not here. We as God's people are kingdom citizens. But we're not there yet. Just like we're already citizens of heaven, right? Uh, are you a citizen of heaven as a believer? Yeah, Philippians 3, 20, 21. You are already, I mean, if, if you put your faith in Christ, your name is written down in the Lamb's book of life. You're a citizen of heaven. But are you in heaven already? I know you're close being here this morning. <laughs> you're not there yet. So likewise with the kingdom. We're kingdom citizens as God's people, but we're not in the kingdom yet. The kingdom is a future reality. Here's where we are. We're in the church age. God's doing a a brand new thing from the Old Testament. Israel in the Old Testament. Church age. Building a forever family of believers in Jesus Christ. Whosoever will can come and be a part of the family. We're the bride of Christ. The body of Christ. He's building this. But when when the family is completed, we're going to be raptured out of here. I always think that would be so cool if it happened during a message when I just got done saying something like that. But, you know, we'll see. We don't know. We're we're not setting dates. We're told we don't know. But that's the next event on God's prophetic calendar, so to speak, the rapture of the church. And, of course, then we have, uh, you know, the the tribulation period where God's going to again turn his attention to Israel and the whole world's going to come against Israel. And in in that pressure cooker, Israel's finally, finally, finally going to come to repentance. And when they do, guess what the Messiah is going to do? He's going to come to their rescue and rescue them from the entire world. That's what the second coming is about. And then what happens? Well, the kingdom comes. Christ comes, sets up his kingdom. First with a 1,000 year reign that then segues into the eternal state here. 
but there's going to be a 1,000-year reign. So that's what, that's what we're looking at as far as the theology, as far as the kingdom. Now, we're going to be there. We're going to be with Christ. We'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And the Bible says, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherever the Lord goes, we're going. And when he comes back here, we're coming with him as the bride of Christ. And we're going to rule and we're going to reign with Jesus Christ. But you know what? That's future. We're still here. We're not here. This simple theology is so muddled by so many in evangelical circles. They want to say somehow we're in the kingdom. Boy, you really messed up when you go there. And most everybody is messed up. I don't mean to be mean or certainly arrogant, but I really think they are messed up on kingdom theology. We're not there yet. And that's significant. The Messiah is the deliverer. The kingdom is a time of coming deliverance. There are two main aspects of kingdom deliverance. God's people will be delivered from the power of Satan as Satan will be bound for a thousand years in the bottomless pit. Revelation 20. This depicts spiritual, it also depicts spiritual deliverance. Well, this depicts spiritual deliverance uh, when Satan will be bound. But then there's also physical deliverance from the consequences of sin as denoted in the reality of physical healing. We have a kingdom context, a prophetic kingdom context in Isaiah 35, which says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, the lame shall leap like a deer, the tongue of the dumb shall sing. You see, the kingdom, prophetically, will be a time of great spiritual and physical deliverance from the forces of evil and from the consequences of sin. And it will be, drum roll, it will be the Messiah Jesus who brings it about. The ministry of Jesus puts this on display to show that indeed he was the prophesied, promised Messiah Deliver. He was the king presenting the kingdom. What we have in the ministry of Jesus is a little preview of coming kingdom deliverance. A little foretaste, a little sampling of the kingdom to come, a little uh, validation, credential showing that he is the king who has the power and authority to present the kingdom. And it's glorious. By the way, what a difference. Between Jesus' kingdom miracle ministry and the so-called faith healers of today. You see, Jesus healed everyone. He healed completely, instantly, permanently, and undeniably. I'll put that up against any so-called faith healer in the world. I don't care who it is. You know, they might blow on dandelions and say they're blowing away COVID and then the thing continues on for month after month after month. Please. Christ gave a sample of kingdom power while sham false teachers line their pockets and put on a show but don't really yield results anything like Christ did. They are clouds without rain. They are all about self, not really about the truth. And note that there is a clear distinction between demon possession and physical illness. They are presented here as two different things here in verse 16. Not all mental illness is a matter of demonic activity, but some is. The world does not recognize demonology and therefore seeks a medical paradigm, a medical solution to everything, even when the root issue may well be a spiritual or demonic problem. And let me tell you, when you give drugs to uh, demon problems, 
it doesn't cure the problem. Uh, it might mask it. might mask it. As believers, we've been set free by Christ and cannot be possessed by demons. We are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has moved in. And when he moves in, he lives there alone. Believe me, he's not going to share that space with demons. 1 John 4, 4 says, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Who is in you? The Holy Spirit. However, while we cannot be possessed as believers, we can be harassed and oppressed. Ephesians 6, 12 says we do wrestle with the forces of evil and we need to look to God in all matters of spiritual warfare. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 invites us in our weaknesses to come boldly to God's throne of grace to receive help in time of need. Again, we're coming to Jesus. He's our deliverer. He's our strength. Everything we need, we're getting from Jesus. Our whole focus is Jesus all the time. We have all we need in Christ, but we do need to avail ourselves of it. Verse 17, he says this was happening. Jesus is delivering the the demon-possessed and and healing everybody. Verse 17, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying he he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Wow, this is an interesting verse. It's an interesting statement that has stimulated lots of discussion. You see, Matthew here connects Christ's healing ministry to the atonement passage in Isaiah 53. And for this reason, charismatic and Pentecostal teachers have argued that healing for all believers is immediately available in the atoning work of Christ on the cross. However, that's only partially right, meaning it is wrong. We have to back up and see the greater context of what Matthew is saying. You see, Matthew speaks from a big picture perspective. Realize that at the time of Christ's earthly healing ministry, the cross was still future. Right? Yes. You can track with me there. And uh, Matthew 8.17 is a quote of Isaiah 53.4. And here's what Isaiah 53.4 says. Surely he has borne our griefs, literally sicknesses, and carried our sorrows, literally pains. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Didn't appreciate him. Matthew is presenting the ministry of Christ, which gives a preview of the coming coming kingdom healing, which ultimately is based on the atoning work of Christ presented in Isaiah 53. Thus, ultimately, Matthew sees the fulfillment of kingdom healing as a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 4. The big picture view is that the preview of coming kingdom healing, evidenced by Christ in his earthly ministry, anticipated his atoning work on the cross. All healing is ultimately based on the atoning work of Christ as spelled out in Isaiah 53. So if you put it all together, here's what you end up with. Messianic kingdom restoration. What's involved? Well, spiritual restoration. Ultimately, that's kingdom restoration. Physical restoration. Ultimately, kingdom restoration. But the basis of it all is the cross of Christ. 
And Matthew is drawing this whole big picture together. That's what he's doing. In the kingdom, the effects and the consequences of sin will be removed. Largely in the millennial kingdom and then completely in the eternal phase. Matthew, in his kingdom emphasis, anticipates this coming kingdom reality as being fulfilled on the basis of Christ's atonement. But again, Christ's healing ministry was merely a foretaste, a preview of the ultimate kingdom fulfillment, which is yet future. Thus, in Christ's earthly ministry, it was fulfilled in a partial sense and in the sense of anticipation. But correct theology notes that while complete healing is ultimately in the atonement, we're not experiencing that yet today. That reality will be fully realized in the kingdom. And we're not there yet. We've already established yet. We're not in the kingdom. We have a sampling of it in Christ's ministry, but the complete fulfillment of it is yet future. Today we partake of the spiritual aspects of healing provided for in the atonement. But not yet in all the physical aspects. In other words, these bodies we live in are still prone to sickness and death. Peter emphasized the spiritual realization that we uh, now know as seen in 1 Peter 2.24. 1 Peter 2.24, he says, Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. That last part here is a quote from Isaiah 53 as well. Peter's quoting from the same context of Isaiah 53 in verse 5 and makes application to our spiritual lives. Not our physical healing, bore our sins. Peter's emphasizing Christ dying for our sins and the resulting spiritual healing. That is where we are today. As believers, we have been reconciled to God spiritually on the basis of Christ's cross work. Now, certainly God can heal. He works in answer to prayer. But in terms of kingdom miracles on display through the Messiah, that was unique to Christ and what he was doing and what he was presenting in terms of his messianic credentials. The completion of what Christ has accomplished for us, that is complete physical healing, awaits the rapture resurrection. It's on its way. It's just not here yet. You say, how do you know that? Well, it's just clear everywhere in the New Testament. For example, in Romans 8, 22, 23. Now, we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, this is saved people. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. The full, the full paying off as far as what Christ has accomplished for us physically awaits this future Day. In Revelation chapter 21, 4, we read this. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, sorrow, crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things. The former things have passed away. You see, in the kingdom, the things that will be former are yet present. You see, we still have death, right? I have a witness. Yeah, I'm not, hopefully not right here now, but... Uh, We still have death, sorrow, crying, pain. But in the full realization of the kingdom, these things will all be past. Won't be any more of that. They will be former things, never to be experienced again. But that's not where we live now. 
Right now, we still groan. We're groaners, right? My fellow groaners. We groan as we await the redemption of the body. We groan because we live in bodies that are breaking down. They're subject to the second law of thermodynamics, right? We're all breaking down. I know you might look in the mirror and say, well, I'm getting better. Do not be deceived. (laughs) You're not getting better. Things are getting worse day by day. Stop looking in the mirror. It will help you. (laughs) The kingdom is coming, but it's not here yet. Paul sarcastically said to the errant Corinthians, quote, you have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign. That we also might reign with you. 1 Corinthians 4.8 You see the Corinthians had an errant kingdom theology. Claiming they were already experiencing kingdom realities when they were not. So errant kingdom theology is not a new phenomenon. D.A. Carson, from the perspective of of the New Testament writers, the cross is the basis for all the benefits that accrue to believers. But this does not mean that all such benefits can be secured at the present time on demand any more than we have the right and power to demand our resurrection bodies. Hey, you want to claim all the healing that's available in the atonement? Yeah, claim that. Claim a glorified body. I'd like to see it. It would be amazing. And I would become a believer. He goes on. The availability of any specific blessing can be determined only by appealing to the overall teaching of Scripture. That's what we emphasize teaching and understanding in context, not taking something out of context. Well, in chapter 8, 1 through 17, we have seen the kingdom authority of Jesus on display, which evoked an emotional response among the masses. But as Lord, Jesus demands that his people be followers who truly recognize and submit to his authority. So Matthew now inserts two examples to illustrate this reality. And we're going to have to move very fast. See, I've got six pages and about six minutes to do this. It's called speed reading. I don't know what. We're going to have to leave something out here. Pretty sure of it. But anyway, verse 18. And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. As Jesus prepared to cross over the Sea of Galilee, a scribe stepped forward, claiming to be a willing follower. Again, we see the issue is one of authority and Christ's right to demand ultimate allegiance. He's driving this point home. And as Lord, who do you suppose sets the terms? He does. He does. Verse 19 A certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. The scribes were the scholars of the day, biblical scholars. They were often closely associated with the Pharisees. By the way, the term scribe is found 23 times in Matthew, almost always in a negative way, with perhaps an exception once or twice. But this certain scribe comes to Jesus and he says, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, what would we say if we had that kind of thing? Thank you for joining in with our group. Let's present you and thank the Lord for you. So excited. Let's get you signed up. Let's praise the Lord. Thank you. God's been at work in your life. It's obvious. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't do that. He pressed the issue further as if to indicate this man had not really counted the cost of true discipleship. You know, we like to make it easy. Easy, easy. Jesus didn't make it easy. And we're saved by faith alone, but it's not an easy believism. 
The whole issue is the nature of what is what constitutes true saving faith. And I take the position that true saving faith recognizes Jesus for who he truly is, as Lord, as well as Savior. It's noteworthy here that he called Jesus teacher and not Lord. Moody Bible commentary, teacher is used in Matthew by people who did not actually believe in Jesus. We see that. Popular movements are exciting. They have a draw to them. People want to be a part of it. And apparently, this is where this scribe was coming from. He wanted the prestige of it all, but had not considered the cost of being a true disciple. Verse 20, Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man is nowhere to lay his head. Again, Jesus did not make the terms of following him easy. Talk is cheap, but real commitment is another thing. Jesus did not even have a place of his own to sleep. Summary, D.A. Carson says, strictly speaking, it was a pointed way of saying that true discipleship to the Son of Man is not comfortable and should not be undertaken without counting the cost. And that seems to be the sense of it here. Discipleship is not glamorous. It's not comfortable. Unless you're all in on the basis of faith in Christ for who He is, as He emphasizes here, the Son of Man, you're missing it. If you're in it for what you can get out of it, you're missing it. You're not a true disciple and are probably going to be sorely disappointed. J.C. Ryle said, Nothing has done more harm to Christianity than the practice of filling the ranks with Christ, uh, the ranks of Christ's army with every volunteer who is willing to make a little profession. Well, that's true. We don't talk about counting the costs. I mean, that's evangelicals have, no, that's, that's, that's not right. <laughs> the scribe called Jesus teacher, but in response, Jesus called himself the Son of Man, which is clearly a messianic title. We believe it goes back to Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13, 14. I was watching the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. It was given to him dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all people's nations' languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. This was no normal son of man. Sometimes it is used in reference to just humanity. But in context here, it's, it's messianic. And this describes, yes, he is the son of man, the ultimate representative of humanity. But he is unique in that he is exalted above all and he reigns over all eternally, indicative of a divine human messiah. We have these messianic titles in the scriptures. Son of man, human name, son of David, royal name, son of God, divine name. Then another of his disciples said to him, verse 21, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. Well, this indicates that both the first man, uh, the, the previous one, and this one were both disciples. It says another of his disciples uh, and we think it's used here in a loose sense. The word disciple simply means follower or learner. In the Gospels, there were general followers who showed interest in Jesus. But Jesus made a distinction between them and those who were disciples indeed. In other words, there are nominal disciples who may follow outwardly for a time, but are not truly saved. In contrast, there are those who are truly committed disciples who are the real deal. And we see this, just some examples here in John 6, 6, 6 called 666 for a reason. 
From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. What kind of disciples are these? That was a great following. They were following all right. When Jesus said a few hard words, he said, yeah, we can't put up with that. I'm out of here. John 8, 31, Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you continue, you remain in my word, you are my disciples indeed. You're not just outward followers, you're the real deal. Evangelical commentary on the Bible, the teacher of the law, that is the scribe, verse 19, and the man in verse 21, another disciple, were disciples in the sense that they followed Jesus about and attended to his teaching as distinct from those who committed to his lordship. And that seems to be the emphasis. The earlier scribe outwardly seemed willing to follow, but Jesus challenged him to count the cost. Now this outward disciple wants to be able to set the terms. But that doesn't fit with the lordship authority of Jesus. The authority of Jesus means he's in charge. And he insists that he be the number one priority. It's often been said, Lord me first doesn't go together. That's a non sequitur. Something has to give. Verse 22, but Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now we don't know if this man's father had died yet or not. And commentaries discuss this. You see, the Jews often buried a dead person on the very same day they died. So if that was the case, what's this man doing here with Jesus? I think he'd be busy this day. I mean, by the time you get back, the burial is going to be done. Therefore, many think that very possibly what this man was actually saying is that he wanted to go home, wait for his father to die, get the inheritance, and then come and follow Jesus. You know, Jesus, I got the, I'm available now. But Jesus, with lordship authority, demands that he be the priority, even above family, even above family. In saying, let the dead bury their own dead, Jesus was saying, let the spiritually dead bury their own physically dead. But this man's priority was to follow Christ. That's what it was to be. The spiritually dead can handle the mundane affairs. But in the parallel passage, Jesus said to this man, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. This was a very authoritative thing to say because the Jews considered it the highest of obligations to give family Parents, a proper burial. For Jesus to put himself above family in this way made a major statement regarding his authority and importance. Matthew 10, 37, Jesus said, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. You love son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You see, plainly said, Jesus demands that he be number one. Allegiance to him must be supreme. That's what it means to be a true follower, a disciple indeed. This is the level of importance and authority that Jesus has attached to himself. Now, the evangelical commentary in the Bible says, Neither man's response is recorded, but the issue is clear. Following Jesus supersedes all other commitments. That's what he's asked. That's what he's demanding. I don't know if you can read that. Hopefully I can. By signing the Declaration of Independence, the 56 Americans pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. It was no idle pledge. Nine signers died of wounds during the Revolutionary War. Five were captured or imprisoned. Wives and children were killed, jailed, mistreated, or left penniless. Twelve signers' houses were burned to the ground. Seventeen lost everything they owned. 
No sign or defected. Their honor, like their nation, remained intact. I think we'd all agree that was an honorable commitment. And we can thank them for it. Right? I mean, we are the beneficiaries of it. But let me ask you. Let me ask you something. Does Jesus require less? I mean, it's almost sacrilegious to ask that question, isn't it? Is the value and importance of Jesus less than this type of commitment? Or does the authority of Jesus call for an even greater commitment? I would say say yes, an even greater commitment that supersedes all other commitments. In Matthew 10, Jesus said he came to set family members one against another. They would have to choose Christ or family. And it's in that context, he said, he who loves father more than me is not worthy of me. In Mark 10, he told a rich young ruler, he says, I've done all these things. I've I've kept all the commandments. And Jesus said, "Uh, uh, uh, there's one thing, one little problem. You know, all your possessions, you need to sell them and come and follow me. And you'll have treasure in heaven. Had a little God called materialism. In these two examples, Christ emphasized that which tends to be most dear and idolized by people, namely close family members and treasured earthly possessions. Jesus emphasized that he must be more important than any other person, more important than any other thing. This is the stuff of true saving faith. This is the stuff of true discipleship. Jesus clearly demands to be number one above all else. Other sacred pledges may be honorable, But for the true believer, recognition of Christ's lordship authority takes precedence above all other commitments. It's the stuff of true faith. This is what it means to call Jesus Lord and Savior. Jesus isn't your number one. You have yet to call him Lord and mean it. And you don't yet know him as Savior. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You have to, from the heart, call on him for who he is as Lord. As Savior, he died for all of our sins. As Lord, he rose again the third day. Saving faith believes in him as personal Savior and personal Lord. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's stand and have our closing song.